long does it take you to make a hat from scratch when you do the full process? It's a full day, sometimes too. It's either like a full day with no distractions or two days if I'm not like working like from the time I wake up pretty much to the time I go to bed. But I was dreaming the hats long before I was making the hats. Is this where you'd like to be in your life? And is this what you'd like to be doing? How'd you get here? And where do you hope to go in the future? Most importantly, how are things right now? And what have you learned along the way? This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time? My family is like New York Jews way back, but no one has practiced for a few generations. So my great-grandmother, Irene, lived to be 107. She was 98 when she left Brooklyn for the first time. Moved to Oakland with my grandmother and my great aunt. And between all of those women and my mother and my father, I was raised in Berkeley. So a lot of really powerful ladies in my life growing up. My father's side made clothing. So it's always kind of been in my world and certainly you know, lies in my genetics, this wanting to create garments to adorn people in a beautiful way. Um, I was raised in South Berkeley, right by the Oakland border, where I now make hats and help to take care of my dad. When I was a little kid, it's definitely a weird one. I um, used to go up to Telegraph Avenue and put on performances um, and wear a top hat or I would do my magic shows also in my top hat. That was definitely my hat growing up. Although I had a few other hats. I had a cowboy hat that I was really into. And I'd either like want to play cowboy and be a cowboy with like a big old like 10 gallon. Or sometimes I would pretend to be John Lennon and wear like a, like eight panel Gatsby and round, round glasses. I always loved hats growing up. I wasn't raised really with much, really any religion around me. But at a young age, really felt felt something going on out there that no one seemed to be able to explain, and it seemed like religion to my you know ten year old eyes was the closest thing that was out there accessible to me that could explain the presence that I was feeling. So I tried some religions. I started with Hinduism. I grew up right down the street from the Hare Krishna temple. So I would like go over there after school and like see what was going on. I really liked it. There were like all these colorful gods and it kind of felt like a cartoon. So I tried that for a few months. Then I tried Catholicism for a little bit. That didn't work out. And finally, you know, I just kind of settled on Judaism. Felt the most organic to me. And then didn't really practice at all. In that time, a few years later, I guess I was in fifth grade, and my dad got diagnosed with renal cell cancer with kidney cancer, which has been a part of his life ever since. He's, you know, in many ways a walking miracle. The doctors have been pretty in awe of how long he's survived, considering how advanced his cancer has been in the last now 14 years. 
yeah, so that kind of shifted, you know, that kind of like being confronted with mortality at that age definitely pushed me a little bit deeper into wanting to engage in spirit work. And then there was like a lot of, there was like a, a bunch of years where that kind of went under the underground, or I guess where his cancer was in remission and it, it wasn't like really on the foreground so much. And then my freshman year of college, I was at school at Davis and between my winter and spring quarter went on a trip with my folks and we came back and this big mirror in the man uh, on the mantle in our living room had fallen and shattered all over the floor in the living room and it just looked like all these like all these memories of like dancing with my parents in the living room and playing music and it just all these memories just like shattered across the floor that led into receiving notice about five days later, once I had gotten back to school, that his cancer had progressed into his adrenal gland. And since they'd already taken out a kidney, the adrenal gland sits on top of the kidney. He only had one adrenal gland. They were not going to have to take out the other, which would, uh, you know, affect his life forever. It was really never the same after that. And adrenal glands are pretty crucial organs. And you take synthetic, now you take synthetic hormones to offset that what that organ naturally produces but it's always this like really delicate um trial of trying to figure out exactly how much you should be taking when you should be taking it not easy so i was at school got this news decided to stay in my classes walked into class on my first day of my spring quarter my freshman year and I had realized when I got to the class that I had entered the wrong registration number when I thought I was walking in to a class on a sustainable building, like green building. Turns out that I had actually signed up for a class called Contemporary Shamanism, being taught by an Australian woman in the drama department named Jade McCutcheon. And that entering my life at the moment that it did with Western medicine saving my father, but also like taking out crucial organs as like their only way to save him. It felt fateful. And within a few weeks of starting that class, I all of a sudden got linked up with two medicine teachers that I've been working with ever since for the last now seven years, going on eight years. I would say that was a pretty um, pivotal moment in my life. From there, I finished my freshman year and went down to Ecuador for the first time and just started this journey that would take me deep into, you know, the world of sacred plants and their ability to help us self-heal and without realizing it, deep into the world of hats and the ways that those can help us self-heal. So I returned from that month in Ecuador to school and declared a major in international relations, focusing on Latin America, land use in Latin America. And, you know, pretty typical. And then decided that I would return to South America and get a little bit deeper into the work that I was doing and some of the things that I saw and just knowing that there was just a lot more for me to do down there. 
more that, you know, I needed to do them. So I decided to take a year off of school, flew into Quito with plans of making my way all the way from Quito, Ecuador, down to the tip of Patagonia. And I did that until I got to Bolivia. About halfway through my trip, I'm in La Paz, Bolivia, sick as a dog. Basically, just like stuck in this little dingy hostel room, like delirious, as, you know, happens to many people when they're traveling down there, especially for extended periods of time. After, you know, several days of being incapacitated, I muster up the strength to get up and telephone my parents. And my dad answers the phone. He sounds like he's all worked up. He's been trying to get in touch with me. He says, Will, I'm sick. Turns out that the cancer has spread pretty seriously. And he tells me that he thinks it's time to come home. And I'm like still half, you know, <laughs> half in the other world from this this serious fever. And I, I tell him that I'm not going to come home, that I have to kind of see this out, that I'm going to the jungle. And I was going out there to, well, because I felt like I needed to do it. And I said, Dad, give me a month. I'm not going to talk to you for a month. And I'm sure he's sitting there being like, you selfish son of a bitch. Like, how are you not going home right now? And Why did you feel like you needed to do it? I mean, because I was 19 and thought that I knew what was right and felt like I was on the precipice of something. And I'd heard about this plant called Unia de Gato that was growing out there that I thought could be of assistance plant so i went out there for a month and i prayed i just fucking prayed i was living on this farm this belgian man and i just made prayers every day and he started a new medication at that time and somewhere between the prayers and the new medication or the prayers for the medication or whatever however it worked by the time i came out of the jungle it had gone back into remission at least for the next little period and i closed out my trip so then I came back to school after that, junior year, and then started working to get grants to go back down to that spot in Bolivia where I had been before when my dad was sick. That farm in Bolivia. This the Belgian man? Yeah. How did you find the farm? I heard about it from someone else that had been traveling down there, and I knew that it was the, like, it was the area where Unia de Gato existed. It's an area where a lot of crazy stuff existed. It's in northern, it's like kind of like Brazil, Peru, and Bolivia all meet up in that little corner right there. As long as it's not too personal, no, okay. what did the prayer, I hesitate to use the word ritual, but just what did the prayer down there look like? Well, I found the Unia de Gato, and I wasn't, you know, I had, after the, after I'd walked into that class my freshman year, I started, I went told my friend Max that there was, that I was like, had taken this class and I was like, you know, trying to, you know, learn more about this in the name of, you know, my father, which would turn out to really just be in the name of me, you know, my own healing. And he faithfully, serendipitously, whatever it was going to stay with his aunt and uncle who work with plant medicine. And... And he also had just been invited to go sit in, a, in an Inipi ceremony, the Lakota Sweat Lodge ceremony. And through those two channels, I wound up starting to really work in those paths. 
and really, you know, learn those traditions and those ways of praying. The one being from the, the Keros tradition of the Sacred Valley outside of Cusco and Peru, and the other, the, the Great Plains, the Lakota people of North America. And I still work with those two teachers that I met when I was 18. What did the prayer look like down there? At that point, I was not, I didn't have a lot of like resources or knowledge about like traditional ways of praying. I've always, you know, I was raised not religious at all. My parents, I mean, Jewish blood, but no, no practicing Jews. And I was like in third grade maybe and like felt this tingle of wanting to know what the hell was going on out there and in here. So I kind of had that background and then I was, you know, I had engaged with these indigenous North and South American traditions for a few years. But my prayers looked like only my prayers could look at that moment. Um, but a lot of it was spent with this plant, the Unia de Gato, uh, which means cat's claw. It's a vine that grows in that area that was used to, because it, it has these little claws, these little hooks on it that looks like a cat claw. And the knowledge of those people is that by in ingesting that, the bark of that vine in a tea, that those claws would remove tumors, would pull tumors out. He wasn't there, so I was making the prayers for him via this plant. However it worked, it worked. I don't know. <laughs> what would you do with the plant? Would you drink the tea or would you burn the plant? Yeah, I was drinking the tea every morning. Every morning. And yeah, just making making prayers, asking the universe to take care of it. And the universe either made the tumors go away or provided him with this medication that had a like a I think they, had, they said it had like a 10% chance of like stopping the tumors from growing, let alone actually making it get smaller. It was like did not, it was like a total last ditch effort. They did not really think it was going to work and it worked. So by whatever means, he, he was able to continue to live at the moment that it looked like he was not going to be living. anymore. And it's great because I really needed these last, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago. So you came back, came back. Did another year of college, taking classes about, I got really into like political ontology. And so I wrote a proposal to get a grant to go back to Bolivia to write my senior honors thesis about that. And I wound up back in Bolivia, back down there for three months, deeper in the jungle though, not with the Belgium man. It was the same area, but I went farther in where the mining was happening and wound up writing a lot of pages about it. It's also where I got, where I first did my toes in hat making. When I was in Bolivia at that time, I, I had to go back and forth to La Paz a bunch to get supplies or do interviews or whatever. It was just like really treacherous bus ride between La Paz and the closest town of Apollo. Bus ride would take anywhere from like eight hours to one time. It took three days because we we, the bus kept getting stuck in the mud. We'd have to get out and everyone would push the bus and put stones in front of the wheels and everything saw a bus go over and had to like first respond. It, it, that was, a, that was a crazy summer for me. So this is between junior and senior year. Yeah. And you got a grant to go back down to go back down political ontology back in Bolivia, deeper in the jungle. And you're just kind of becoming introduced to hat making. 
Yeah, so anyway, while I'm in La Paz, there's this like street in La Paz where all the hat makers are. There's like maybe 10 stands on either side of the street with all these, you know, Bolivian men in there just like blocking hats one at a time. And they have like their four or five hats that they're selling right there. And everybody wears hats in the Andes. Not everybody, but it's it looks like it once did here where people wore hats. People wear felt hats. The women usually wear little bowler hats there. And the men wear, you know, felt fedoras. So the hat culture is still very much alive and well there. So there's occupation for people to make hats. And they make them in these little stalls. So I hung out with this man down there who, um, Roberto, who kind of gave me a lot of my kind of like early understanding of just kind of like seeing the way that it works. And then I came back. I wrote my thesis. We occupied UC Davis. And the cops were pretty brutal, got me involved with the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, who was taking the case, the police brutality case, and wound up helping me to get a job in New Orleans after school, working for the ACLU office in Louisiana. So I graduated, spent the summer after school in in Mexico and Chiapas, doing interviews for a nonprofit that was like auditing microfinance banks. I did three months just like traveling around with names of women to interview and finding them and interviewing them. And then I moved to New Orleans. I was living uptown and working for the ACLU. And me and my buddy started this like donation-based taco business. We were making our own tortillas, slow cooking pork, really great tacos. We just go out there to like an old door on some hobby horses and a couple grills. And we, we made tacos and we gave them out and had, had asked people to give a donation Amazing how much more people give when you let them taste it first and give what they think it's worth. Whereas we would have done, you know, two or three dollars a taco, people would never hesitate. Well, not never, but often people would give five, ten, twenty bucks to sit there and eat a couple of tacos. And then people that didn't have any money got to eat tacos too. It was a pretty wild a social experiment that has played into my hat making because with my hats now, I usually give some kind of sliding scale as well hoping that people will really think about what it's worth and then think about what they have and recognize that everybody that wants medicine hat should get a medicine hat and they kind of lay themselves where they should in that range. And I started working for a hat company called the Gorin Brothers Hat Company based out of San Francisco, fourth generation family hat business, really wonderful people. They had this, they have a shop on Royal Street in the middle of the French Quarter they gave me a job just selling hats on the weekends, and it was a, sh- I mean, it was a riot. Just like tons of tourists coming in all day, and just like we were just, just like partying hard and putting hats on people's heads and watching the dollars rack up. It was very inspirational in terms of how much market there could be for hats, but I was only doing it on the weekends. During the week, you were working at the ACLU and running the taco stand? And doing tacos. What was the name of the taco stand? The Communist Swine Taco Social. It was great because my buddy was working at a pop-up on Friday nights. And so we would take all the leftovers from this pop-up behind the bar, behind Marie's bar, and turn those leftovers into part of our taco ingredients. It was great. It was it was a beautiful thing. Communist Swine Taco Social. Did you guys have a logo? It was a pig with like a little like mouth. It was actually, you know, the the photo, it's like Marx, like Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, I think. You know that like kind of famous photo of the four of them? And then we turned Mao into the pig. 
It was cool. I'll I'll show you the the image. It was a great image. It was fun. It lasted for two years. We did a lot of. That's amazing. We did a lot of taco business. Like to do anything for two years, never mind a donation based <laughs> taco stand. Taco stand. Yeah, and we made our own tortillas, which was great. Like we were like rolling, we were like pressing our own tortillas and like cooking them right there, so they'd be like a fresh hot tortilla. It was the real deal. It was a real deal. They were delicious. Many return customers. And that's why the cops didn't mess with us, because the cops loved the tacos. <laughs> with this time down in New Orleans, were you happy thinking, I'm going to stay here forever? Were you yearning to go back to South America, to get back to California? Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was a very fun time, and there were a lot of good things happening. But internally, where were we at? Good question. Um, well, I really went out there. I had the... The connection with the ACLU, but my brother was starting school at Tulane. I have one brother, younger brother, three years my junior, and he was starting school at Tulane right when I moved there. So a lot of it was also wanting to support him out there because with all the stuff going on with my dad, it just felt, I mean, we're really close, but it just felt nice for us to kind of be out there together. So I felt settled, at least as long as he was there. Never really thought about making like a permanent home there. I realized, I think then, and still know today that I'll likely be making some kind of triangle in my life between New Orleans, the Bay Area, and you know Ecuador, Peru, the Andes, that region. And I was happy. I really didn't like having an office job. So I was kind of yearning to get out of that. And by the time I left, I was ready to go. I left after being there a year and um, took a bike ride with some friends through Central America. Did like 2,500 miles from Cancun to Panama City. When I got back from that bike ride, my old friend Sarah had recently broken up with her boyfriend. They had been living in this school bus, converted school bus, veggie oil situation for the last three years and neither of them wanted to look at the bus because they had just split up so they gave it to me and I drove that bus back to New Orleans and lived there for another year in the backyard in the seventh ward in the school bus having a really great time because I didn't have that office job anymore so I was basically just doing the tacos and working at the hat shop for that year during that time when you were working at the hat shop even though you were good at selling hats and it was nice to be doing good business did you find that for you, you approached it differently? Were you really cared? Yeah, I loved hats way more than, I mean, I love hats more than like, I would say most people. I'm sure there's some other people out there that are just as excited about hats as I am. But I mean, you can look back in my whole life. There's, you can like check on, on YouTube. There's a video of me playing the like, the cap salesman in my preschool rendition of Caps for Sale in 1994. All the other kids are monkeys, and I'm the like one with the mustache, just like I have now, wearing all the caps, and all the monkeys come and try to take the caps for sale, caps for sale, 50 cents a cap. Preschool. I always loved hats. So yes, I did not work, many people working in the hat shop were working a really fun retail gig. I was there because I love hats and what they do for people, and watching that transformation happen over and over again of people feeling really normal when they walk in and really extraordinary when they walk out. 
just that the way people's eyes and smile, like the whole facial expression, the way it changes when you like suddenly see yourself as like cool enough to look good in a hat and anyone can do it. It, it just, people walk into Nordstrom's or whatever and there's like two hats there in one size and they're like, and neither of them look good. So they're like, oh, I'm not a hat person. It's like if you walked into a shoe store and there were like two pairs of shoes and like, oh, neither of these shoes fit. Oh, they don't look good. So I'm not a shoe person, right? It's like, that's most people's hat or they find, you know, some really crappy hat from China. And of course it doesn't look good because it's a crappy hat. So having, helping people looking at their faces, looking at their features, looking at their style, looking at their lifestyle and having the selection of all these beautiful hats to choose from. It was really fun just like pairing people with their perfect hat and having them watching them over and over again all day watching strangers go through this experience of like seeing themselves differently and walking out like like the hat was almost like lifting them a little bit like people would walk like they walk in like a little bit slouched over and then suddenly they have this hat and they're like standing a little bit taller like the hat's like lifting them towards the heavens you know and all day happened all day what is it about a hat that's able to do this to people? You know, throughout history, hats have always had a, a place demarcating the holy from the mundane, right? Yarmulkes, kufis, cardinal hat. There's always, in, in cultures across the world, the hat is either something you put on when you're going to pray or you, take it, or you take it off to pray. So I think that there's something, whether people are, you know, religious or spiritual or whatever, just... Having a hat on, there's something about it that is just kind of like indescribable, but humans have recognized throughout history that there's something holy about it. What is it about a hat? We're talking about your face. It's a frame for your face, right? I'm not trying to cover up your face. I'm trying to take what you have, one thing that like can't really change and everybody sees and recognizes you by, and you find a way to to frame it beautifully. So you either take features that are over-exaggerated and either exaggerate them more because you're so excited about it or round them out a little bit, right? Like I have a really big nose. So I wear a wide brim hat and suddenly my nose doesn't look quite as big. Now, on the other hand, like if you have a really round face, a round hat actually looks really good on a round face. You don't want to like offset it. There's a little bit of an art to it and there's a little bit of a science to it. Just like I, I could look at anyone and know pretty much what kind of hat's going to look good on. So there's that side of it of just like, if you take the time to find the right hat, you can find something that actually makes you not that you're not, you know, perfect, a perfect being when you wake up naked every morning, but that you can find something that actually like takes what you have and makes it even a little bit more aesthetically, you know, beautiful. So that's part of it. Or like the best example is like someone with like light eyes and then you like put a hat on that like matches their eye color and suddenly their eyes pop like 10 times more than they did before. That's a, that's a beautiful one. When someone has like, you know, like kind of blue eyes, you put like a teal hat on them or like red hair and you put a teal hat on them. The colors are fun. As fun as the shapes. And then, you know, who wears hats? Fucking people in power, presidents, rock stars, people that like have the confidence to wear a hat. And people come into the hat shop, not hat people, 
because they don't feel confident enough to wear a hat. And then you pump them up and you find the perfect hat and you're like, yeah, you are cool enough to wear a hat. Totally cool enough to wear a hat. And they believe it because they should. And suddenly this hat becomes a reminder that they are worthy of being a hat person, that everybody has a birthright to wear a hat if they want to wear a hat. It's, tra it's transformational. I really believe it. I've seen it happen enough that I really believe that it's a transformational object. I totally agree. I believe it and I'm thinking about everything you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. You're, you're, you're taking what you see deep down inside of that person as unique and, and worthy of highlighting and not only bringing it out to the world, but bringing it out to themselves. That's the essential first step. And then people reinforce it. People come up and they'll say to you all day, nice hat, cool hat. You look cool in that hat. And then it's like, oh, nice. I look cool in this hat. I should totally be wearing this hat. I'm totally cool enough to wear this hat. A little, a little switch, a little transformational moment. And it was amazing. Now I, you know, I don't make, I'm in a much slower process of hatting with what I'm doing now. But back then, on Royal Street, Royal and St. Anne, like dead hard in the French Quarter, saw it all day. People from all over the world, 20, 50, 100, 300 people having a transformational experience of like realizing they're like, Cool enough, attractive enough, interesting enough to pull off a hat. Because the hat is such a like, it's so funny. It's such a like, it's like not a big deal. It's just a hat. It's not like this like crazy thing. But it also has this like mystique taboo in our culture because it's a gener we're now a, gener a full generation removed from when everyone wore hats. That it's now once again this like really kind of like extreme out there thing for people to do. You have no idea how many comments, like 10 times a day if I'm walking, if I'm having like a day out, 10 different people will talk to me about my hat. It's just a hat. Or is it? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly it. It is, and it's so much more at the same time. Yeah. So, from, it was Gorn Brothers? Gorn Brothers. This is my Gorn plug. Gorn's great. <laughs> <laughs> you were selling hats, you were matching people with hats, but you weren't making hats. I was not making hats. So how did you start to open up that area of thinking about making hats or, because that, that I'm sure was a pretty big yeah. transition. I remember one time right before I moved to New Orleans, the first time to work for the ACLU, before I worked for a Goyne hat shop, I was buying a hat at the Goyne Brothers hat shop to bring to New Orleans. And I was walking by this old busted down house on my block that had like, it looked like it had a great little like space that like used to be a storefront, you know, like a hardware store or something. I was like, I should open a hat shop there. Like I should, but it was just, I was just talking to my girlfriend at the time and it was this very like fleeting thought. So that was, I guess, when I really first thought about like, I could have my own hat business one day, but it was fleeting. It was just like, you know, a spark. So then I guess I was at the end of my time in New Orleans right before it was like early summer and started seeing a really amazing woman 
older woman and like on one, like one of our first dates, she was like, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And this is the kind of person that has like in her life thought of what she's wanted to do and just done it. All kinds of things. But like sky's the limit. And I thought about it for a moment and I was like, I want to make hats. That's what I want to do. And I think that that was the moment that I, that it really set it all in motion. So my dad got sick again. He, he was always, there was always tumors there, but they started growing again pretty quick. And it seemed like it was time to come home and be with him and support my mom and just kind of like be in that space. And my, they agreed to like do a little conversion on the garage so that I'd be able to stay there, but not actually have to live in the house. So I leave this like kind of fantasy life living in this mansion with this woman for a couple months to come back to Berkeley and manage the Gorman Brothers Hat Shop in Berkeley. So I spent a year doing that, taking care of my dad and running that hat shop. And I started, I mean, when I was doing that, when I started doing that full time, being in a hat shop full time, I was just touching hats all the time. So of course, eventually I like picked up a needle and was like, oh, okay, I'll just like cut this off and see how they did it and then stitch another band on. And then, you know, I remembered Roberto in Bolivia and I like remembered how just like romantic it looked like watching these people just like kind of muscle out these hats you know because it takes a little bit of like kind of like, like kind of force to like shape a hat and and then like such delicate touch to actually like stitch it all together so I found a man named Wayne Witchard in South San Francisco who's a milliner he does more like uh, more kind of like op like opera hats theater hats Kind of more women's hats mostly. And I took some classes with him and he liked me and kind of helped me out, showed me a lot of things. And then while I was working for Gorn, I started, um, you know, making hats. Started making hats. A lot of just trial and error. A lot of doing something and then ripping it out. Bought a sewing machine. Started buying blocks. And my dad's condition wor condition worsened. We had uh, we did some really beautiful things. We made a book of all of his photographs that got published in Vice and, and Pitchfork and a bunch of other cool, you know, music magazines, which is a really beautiful thing that happened in that time. And I got to sit, I got to be around those medicine teachers more from when I was younger. I'd really missed that. I got to sit in ceremony and you know, be making prayers in that in that space again. And eventually, I. At the end of last year, I told Goran that I wasn't going to be able to work for them anymore. And sought out through the holidays, and my dad was in bad shape. Needed to go to appointments all the time, and just like needed to be around more. I couldn't really hold down the full time position, and I wanted, I like had a vision to make medicine hats, to make hats that would be tools of transformation. Like really, like, like I was talking about what happened in the hat shop for the masses, but like really find a way to integrate medicine work that I've been doing with my interest in hats. And there was a, I was sitting in ceremony with, with Don Victor, with the man from, from Cusco. And I said, it was like kind of like a weird vibe that had come over the ceremony and <clears throat> a little like frenetic energy going on. And, and I just gifted him a hat, a Gorham Brothers hat. This was before I was making them. And he put the hat on and like suddenly the whole vibe changed. And I could like see the way that like 
the way people use rattles or drums or staffs or feathers or incense or whatever in ceremonies to help with these transformational experience with like letting go of hurt and calling in what we need in our lives and saw how valuable a hat could be as a tool for that and wanted to yeah integrate the medicine work with my interest in hats to make medicine hats is the phrase medicine hats yours i've never heard anyone else use it except it is a town in alberta because i had never heard it before either but it sounds so natural when you say it <laughs> that i don't think there's anyone else making medicine hats i had never put together that that is your unique and original manifestation yeah of there's no copyright on it. If anyone else wants to make medicine hats, go crazy. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't know anyone else doing it. That's a fun realization for me. <laughs> yeah, hampui medicine hats. What's hampui? Hampui, hampui. It means soul of mine returned to me. It's usually said after journeying, you know, dreaming, sleeping, being with the ancestors, and you want to call your soul back into your body. To make you more whole than it was when it left on that journey. Hampui. It's beautiful. It just makes my heart ring. Well, what language is it? Quechua. The Quechua is the language of the Incas. It's still spoken by indigenous people throughout the Incas. And when we first met, another phrase that I had never heard before was that of spirit helmet. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else is making spirit helmets. You know, the idea of a medicine hat is like the brim creates this like kind of force field, right? Where you like make a protective barrier for yourself where you don't let things in that you don't need to come in. And then the crown as becomes this like channel to connect with the divine, to hear your plans be whispered by the universe, to know when you should go this way or go that way or, you know, whatever comes up in your life. That it puts you more in tune with what this creation is demanding of you. And it's a beautiful process because when you make a hat, you steam felt or straw, right? You either steam felted wool or fur or woven straw. And it opens up all of the fibers so that you can shape it. And in that moment when all the fibers open, you can make a prayer for yourself. You can call in what you want to call in and... and ask for protection for what you want to be protected from. And then in that moment, you push the hat on the block, it takes its form and then cools. And it holds all those prayers in there. So that every day when you, you can walk with those prayers. And this transition to, to now making the hats, that happened at the end of this last year? Yeah, it's fresh. So this is, this is recent. It's fresh. It's been a long time coming. And now I didn't really understand it. You know, I'm going this in a few months. I'm going down back down to Ecuador and Peru to buy materials. To buy, you know, Panama hats, the finest straw hats that exist, only woven in Ecuador. These beautiful felt hats that they're making down there are. Yeah, it didn't make sense to anybody why I was so intrigued, why all of this was happening, why I wanted to go down to South America. My dad's like. What are you doing? What are you? This doesn't make any sense. What are you doing with your education? Like, wait, and it didn't make sense to me either. But it's faith in my steps, and now I'm finally at a moment in my life where the retrospect 
where it all clicks, where it's like, oh, that's why all that happened. And if we can like in each moment step with the confidence that like in the split second before we die, it will all make perfect sense. It just takes a lot of the stress out of life and allows us to like continue to walk the path we're supposed to walk. Because if we are questioning every step because it doesn't make sense in the moment, even when it feels right, yeah, we stumble and we don't, and we don't, we just stall. We just stall with our like inevitable fate, what's being called of us. You know, I'm of the belief that creation, the oneness of creation, right? The like wholeness of all of this is perfect. It's not missing anything. Spanish, they say, no falta nada. And that in our lives, it's like opening a new puzzle. That you know that no pieces are missing and there's no extra pieces. Right? So it's just like putting together all of the little pieces. And sometimes you got to like try a bunch of them before it fits. But not, not being like, oh, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit. There must be a piece missing. And then you spend half of your night when you're supposed to be working on your puzzle, like searching all over for the missing piece. They're all there. And occasionally in our lives, we get these like flashes of the box and we get to see just for like a split second, like what it's all supposed to look like. And we have to be really attentive to those. And a lot of times they come while we're sleeping or I don't know. They come to everybody in some way, but if we are attuned to it, they come more frequently and we have, and we are aware enough to like, really like be like, Oh, that's important. Like that feels like there's my box. That's what my puzzle looks like. And then it becomes so much easier to start putting the pieces together. And there's, you know, that's like a lesson in like patience and attentiveness, awareness, knowing that like, you got to try a lot of pieces and knowing that when you see that image, pay attention. And then put those pieces in. <laughs> and it doesn't happen the way that we expect it to ever. Right? It's not our plans. It's the plans of creation. And they're... They don't always make sense in the moment. They'll rarely play out exactly the way that you think they will. But that's like the, that's the core, that's like the choreography. That's like being attuned enough to like hear the music of this planet and all of your relations and all of your situations to know how to like move gracefully towards it. And you can't, you can't like charge it too much. I think about it a lot like sailing, right? Anything with like passion or like love or you like want, like things that like are coming towards you to like move you along in your life. That like if you're out on a sailboat, right? Like if you want to find passion in your career, or with a relationship or something, you can hoist your sail, right? If you want, if you want to get a breeze, 
And then even a light breeze will kind of move you more than if your sail is not up. If a really strong breeze comes, it doesn't matter if your sail is up or not, you're going to move. But the one time you don't move when you're sailing is when you're like teed up directly to the wind. You have, you always have to, in my opinion, you always have to be more gentle than that. If you want something, go for it, but you can't force it and you can't rush it. If you like see that wind of passion, you can't like aim right for it. That's when your boat stops. That's how you stop a sailboat is by facing the wind. And it's like the same thing when you're sharpening a knife, right? You're like, you glide it on its edge. It's a dance. But to dance well by yourself or with the partners of your experience in this body, you have to hear the music. You have to like be in tune and like outside of just yourself enough to like hear the melody and the rhythm of this planet and all of the other beings that are in it. Humbly. If you were to title your autobiography, <laughs> what would the title be? The River is Current. I think that's good. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down for an hour and share some of your wisdom and your story with us. I look forward to getting my spirit helmet and we'll be standing up a little bit straighter as I wear it. I've been speaking with Willie Roberts out of Berkeley, California. His hat company is Hampui Medicine Hats, and you can find him with a link that I will provide on our website. Thank you for listening. Is now a good time? Um, <laughs> nice. You look terrific. <laughs> this time when I put it on. Felt so, right. Trying to be